We are all about great causes here at Sex and Space, and we have another one coming at you today. Our shout-out is for Woodhull Freedom Foundation. They envision a world that recognises sexual freedom as the fundamental human right of all individuals to develop and express their unique sexuality, to be personally autonomous with regard to bodily integrity and expression, and to enjoy sexual dignity, privacy, and consensual sexual expression without societal or governmental interference, coercion, or stigmatization. Hell yeah. Check them out at woodhullfoundation.org and Woodhull Freedom on all social channels. Sex, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the speculative interdimensional vehicle, Sex in Space. Its mission, to explore new points of view, to seek out fresh opinions, to boldly go where so many have gone before, and still somehow manage to totally miss the point. Subscribe to Sex in Space, wherever quality podcasts are found. Hello, I'm Tim, and welcome to another episode of Sex and Space. Here, perpetually exploring sex across all of its infinite dimensions. This is the first episode of 2022. Hope that all is well out there in podcast land and you are poised and ready to dive into another awesome interview. This week, it's our very own Dr. Jane Cherrington talking to Dr. Jane Fleischman. Dr. Jane versus Dr. Jane. But before we leap headfirst into that, though, just a wee reminder that we would like it very much if you checked out our social channels. There is heaps coming up for us in 2022, and they're a great place to keep up to date with it all. The links to all our socials are clustered, quivering and lonely in the footer of our website over at sexandspace.com. Head on over there and give them some love. So, to the interview. Dr. Jane Fleischman is an angelic troublemaker and sexuality educator who specializes in sex and older adults. And she is on a mission. Let's climb on in. And now, the interview. Jane, tell us a bit about your mission. I am on a mission. I'm so excited. You know, I'm old, so I don't have much time to be dawdling around. I can't procrastinate too much anymore, although (laughs) I do like to procrastinate. But my mission is this. I'm seriously trying to promote sexual wellness or sexual well-being among older adults in senior living communities, particularly those adults who are from marginalized populations or have because of racism or homophobia or transphobia been really struggling with other issues as well as ageism throughout their lives. So it's a big task, but I'm ready for it. That's um, a pretty awesome mission to be on. And it's pretty large because there's, if you're looking (laughs) at that particular space, there are a lot of stakeholders that you're dealing with, a lot of different vested interests um, circulating around. So Maybe if we start with the people that matter most, and that's the older Great. people you're dealing with. Great. What are so some of your work is um, specifically taking classes, right? 
mm-hmm. and Good. and you um, do sex ed classes mm-hmm. with um, older adults. What is it? Take us into a classroom with you. How do you approach sure. that work? Well, first, can I step back a little bit? Because, you know, I'm a certified sexuality educator. Um, the international organization that started in the U.S., the American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, has a certification program. And when I was in grad school just a few years ago, right? I mean, I just finished at the age of 62 when I got my doctorate. I was given a choice. I could have done sex therapy or sex education. And I chose sex education for one really important reason. I believe that change can be made more quickly for us if we work in the larger sphere of groups, either groups in classes or in the macro level in terms of communities or um, uh, larger institutional change. And I really believe that. And we have so many problems institutionally in so many levels. But I decided that I would start with sex ed with older adults because, by the way, none of my peers were interested in older adults. Everybody was going to talk to young parents or adolescents or people in the veterans, you know, who had come home with disabilities, either Mm -hmm. PTSD or other physical disabilities. But nobody was really interested in old people. So when I go to a class, here's what I do. The first thing, now, by the way, I don't just teach old people. I also teach the old, the people who care for the old people in a long-term care uh, community. But if there are old people in the audience, the first thing I do is I say, uh, it's okay to talk about sex. And you can see this wave of relief coming over people's heads because for many people in their 60s, 70s, 80s, even 90s, they've been thinking about having sex. They've maybe even... Have been having sex. In fact, not just uh, anecdotally, but empirically, uh, John Delamater uh, did some very interesting research that found that people were having sex in their 60s and their 70s and their 80s. And anecdotally, people come up to me all the time and say, you see that woman over there in the back of the room? She's 92 and she's got three boyfriends or, you know, <laughs> something like that. And it's real. So, but I'm saying those are anecdotal uh, expressions. But in any case, if they're thinking about sex or if they're having sex or they're longing to have some sexual issue that is about their sexuality uh, kind of um, um, focused on, they don't have a lot of people to talk to about it. So the first thing I say is let's just make this an okay space. We used to call it a safe space, remember? Yeah. We talked about that in New Zealand, but in the U.S. we talk about safe spaces. Now we talk about brave spaces. We're going to make this a brave space where it's going to be okay if you really want to ask some hard questions. And then I ask people to uh, kind of go on a little bit of a journey with me about what this idea of sexual wellness or sexuality is. And it's not just about sexual behaviors, but it's really about your identity and your orientation and who you've been attracted to and how that may have changed over your lifespan, right? There's some very interesting research about sexual fluidity and how we may change over a lifetime. And so I talk with people about trauma and I talk with people about consent and so much more about um, skin hunger. Are you familiar with that term? It's kind of a it's a no, lovely no. idea. So the idea is 
how much do you want to be touched, right? What's okay with you? How close do you want to be to someone next to you? I remember, you know, when I was in elementary school and somebody wanted to hold my hand all the way through the movie and the movie theater, and it just got all sweaty and kind of yuck <laughs> by the end. But maybe somebody else really liked that. Yeah. So my skin hunger might be different than yours. And over time, it might change. Mm. And then I talk with people about what are the expected changes throughout your lifespan in terms of your bio, psycho, and social, sexual life that you can expect that would be kind of something that we can all um, begin to wrestle with. And yeah. I give them tools and I give them resources, but I give them also a chance to have some fun because, you know, old people love to have fun, right? So that's why old people like to have sex. But I bring out my, um, I'll show, I'll show them to you. You're, I don't know if your uh, listeners can imagine, but I've got a really nice vulva puppet here. I love and your she's vulva just puppet. Beautiful. And she's got velvet and satin and pearls and a little conch shell for her butt. And then I've got this great <laughs> pe penis puppet that I bring out and, and we laugh, right? And I, I oh, call they're him fabulous. Uh, I call him Richard Johnson. <laughs> You could call him Dick. You know, it's I have fun with it, and I, and I teach a little bit of anatomy. You know what I'm saying? I really yeah. try to, and I don't use the word normal anymore. I hate that word. It's just so wrong. There's no normal, and yeah. And so I just try to kind of bring it down to where they are in a yeah. way that is fun and exciting. And I bring out lubes and condoms. I always have a basket full of stuff. Not so easy on Zoom to do that with people, but we're getting back, right? We're um, the U.S. is coming back. Uh, Absolutely, apparently again. it's um, now taking back some space from New Zealand as a good place to live in COVID. Oh, that's great. Well, I don't know. I still would like to come and visit you all in Auckland. It would make me very happy. But in any case, I try to make it uh, like another topic of wellness, right? Another area that we can begin to um, disappear some of those taboos. There was a beautiful quote from you um, that I have possibly paraphrasing. I think it's pretty accurate with a TED talk where you said, you know, in terms of talking about this stuff, particularly in thinking about sexuality and older adults, if we don't have these conversations, we're denying our elders lives of dignity and pleasure at a time when they need every possible reason to live. Mm. And that really resonated for me. I think your point about they are having sex for fun and for pleasure, it's about the extension of sexuality beyond usefulness or reproduction into mm. that space of connection that you talk about. Mm. One of the things that interests me about your work is it's your backfilling, mm -hmm. a big education gap which mm -hmm. most of us have come through life with. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the time in the sex ed space, we look at the implications of the gap in terms of young people, pregnancies, um, STIs. Um, and we don't, again, look at that space and say, what are the implications of that gap through the journey and at the other end of that journey as an older adult? So, from your perspective in that space, what do you see as some of the implications of the sex ed gap facing all of us as we move into that space if we don't have these conversations? 
such a great topic. So thank you, James. One of the ideas that I um, have been talking about a lot comes from a recent article. I don't know if you got a chance to read it. Maggie Symes' article, the title is At My Age. It's such a great article. And she talks about really kind of turning the myth upside down of older people being asexual or um, uninterested or lacking desire. And so many old people have struggles with mental illness and mental health. And particularly since COVID, right, we were trying mm. to keep older adults safe, but they weren't really healthy being socially isolated. And and dementia has increased. And there's some new reports now that are are reminding us that when we keep older adults away from each other, um, cognitive impairment can actually be exacerbated. So what I've been trying to do is give people an idea that they can look at their sexuality and their sexual behaviors in a way that Maggie Syme reports that older adults have said, which is that it's it's gone from this procreative act to a more creative act. It's gone from giving to actually, I'm sorry, let me say it again. It's gone from just giving it to someone else to actually being able to receive mm. through generosity and also through reception. It's gone from this sort of urge and lustful need to more quietude and more conscious uh, connection. Mm. And so there's a more compassionate way, I think, that we can imagine sexuality among older adults. And of course, getting older, if we're fortunate enough to get older, means that we've accumulated some losses. We've yeah. lost our mates. We've lost body parts. We've lost our health. We've lost our income very often. We've lost our neighborhoods. And so with those losses means that we've got to really assess what we want to uh, be vulnerable about as an older adult. Mm. And along with those losses, what I've been talking about lately is this idea of emergent pleasure, that mm -hmm. we have the opportunity to create more pleasure. And um, I, I brought a book with me today, Sex After Grief, by uh, ah. one of my colleagues, Joan Price, who, who met uh, a heterosexual woman. She met a guy at a later age and just was smitten and had great sex and great times with him. And then he died. And then she had to kind of pick up her life. And so she wrote this book about navigating, right? This idea of getting through the rough waters of your sexuality after a loss like mm. a loved one. And you might think about that in sort of um, other ways, right? That uh, I was thinking about older LGBTQ members of our community who came out in their neighborhood 20, 30 years ago, maybe. And they had a community. And yeah. then they move into a senior living community. And then they've got to renegotiate and literally re-navigate this whole idea of coming out because of the loss of their community. And so I've been really struck by how resilient people are. And at some point, if you're interested, I'd like to talk about some of my research about resilience and sexual satisfaction because they are connected. 
um, and that there might be some lessons that we can learn from this as well. I'd love to hear about that research. I think um, also you're raising a topic sort of that loops back to the idea of hmm, maybe not just gaps in sex education, but um, cultural mores around sexuality and navigating grief and loss of a partner when masturbation is a taboo mm. subject and right. particularly for older adults, the idea of self-pleasure um, is something that they wrestle with. Um, and totally. to open up that space and, and introduce the idea of um, being able to be sexual solo. Um, is that something that you talk about in your work? Yeah, I talk about it a lot. I always bring up Betty Dodson's name because I love her book about liberating masturbation. And she was really the, the queen diva of masturbation. And she called it solo sex, which is kind of a softer term, I think. A lot of people think, you know, oh, but the nuns and the priests said I was going to grow hair on my palms if I masturbated. So many taboos about it. Yeah. So, yeah, I do, t I do talk about it a lot. Because many people think that solo sex or masturbation is just what you do in between or after you don't have a lover anymore. And I often say to people, your body's changing. Your erogenous zones may not be what they were 20 years ago. So find out and yeah. bring that information to your next lover. And I think that's another way of thinking about it, just in terms of doing your homework. And I love giving people homework to do, <laughs> to do, to have more masturbation. But you know what I wanted to say about um, uh, this idea of the lack of sex ed, even if older adults had had sex education, which in the US is absolutely abysmal, you know, like, 22 states mandate sex ed for kids ages like 6 to 18. Many states, you don't even have to have medically accurate sex education. And some states even prohibit the discussion of homosexuality. Like if the kid says to the teacher, hey, I think I might be attracted to somebody of the same gender. The teacher isn't allowed in those states to talk to the kid. Right? The, the teacher could get fired. So so this idea about backfilling is an interesting one because even if we had decent sex education 20, 30 years ago, we probably weren't talking about consent. And when I talk to older adults, consent is a new idea. Yeah. What? I'm allowed to say no, but I'm married. Wait, but you know, that kind of thing, this this kind of like head turn of astonishment that I I have the ability to have uh, some ability to have agency over my own body. It's just a brand new concept. Yeah. And of course, there's cultural stereotypes that, you know, go along with that. So it's, it's even in the places where we've had decent sex, ed, people still weren't getting that much information about what I think of as the pleasure side, right? I'm a comprehensive sexuality educator it means that I'm sex positive. It means that I don't just believe in abstinence only. It means that I really think of the whole person, but many people didn't get anything near that. So I do a lot. I do a lot of backfilling, but I consider it really um, kind of a service that I'm offering to people in a way that maybe their school system never could have given them because we weren't training sex educators in this sex positive way. We were doing all that fear-based and harm and keep your knees together, girls, that kind of thing. 
<laughs> now that's going back away. <laughs> yeah, that's my day. That was in my day. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really good call out, Jane, because I'm using the term to, um, in a way that we think about it through the work we do here and incorrectly, um, because it should be an encompassing holistic sexuality education. And how ca- can we even ask um, schools to be that space anyway? Oh, and no. it's, it's no. more, how do we take your mission, these tendrils, this wonderful activism going on in the world, out into the community of family, friends, mm. us, mm-hmm. and, and the conversations like this one, go outside yeah. and create yeah. spaces for sex to emerge as a bigger mm-hmm. conversation. You are not going to believe what I'm going to say next, but a religious organization in the U.S. has actually been a leader in sex education. I know that's going to blow your mind, it but, it, but it's the Unitarians. The Unitarians are very different. They have a wonderful curriculum that goes all the way through the lifespan. In fact, they just finished their newest book on older adults. It's called Our Whole Lives. O-W-L. And OWL, their acronym, is taught in religious institutions all over the country, all over the U.S., maybe other places. I don't know. Maybe it's happening in New Zealand. And they're cool. I mean, they're very progressive. They're also, they included an uh, activity for older adults that I wrote for them as a lesson plan. So I know that that activity is really good. (laughs) Just kidding. But really, seriously, they are doing fantastic work and they're building bridges between adults and their kids. For instance, in a congregation, they don't just want the kids to take the classes. They want the parents to be in their separate uh, discussion groups just with the adults so that the adults can learn how to answer the questions, how to look for resources, how to be a, how to be an ask, what I call an askable adult, somebody yeah. who's got the affect that the kid knows the parent isn't going to flip out when the kid asks them a question. You know, we always tell, uh, when I teach parents and, about uh, talking to their kids, I always say, have your conversations about sex while you're driving, because you're looking forward, they're looking forward, nobody's looking at each other, hopefully, and you're just driving. And that way, the kid isn't, you know, reading every grimace or, or angst-ridden emotion on your face. As a deterrent, they're seeing the road and they're asking a question. But I would say that in this particular um, example I'm giving of OWL, they're doing a really good job of doing what I think of as intergenerational sex education. And one of my hopes, I don't know if I'll ever get there, but one of my hopes is that the older adults that I teach begin to talk to their grandchildren. Wouldn't that be amazing? So that there's not that parent-child thing where I'm a bit squeamish about talking to my own kid, but maybe it's grandma or grandpa that I'm talking to. It's a little bit different. So that's that's something I've, I've talked with other people. And there's a sex educator in um, uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in the U.S., named Tracy Gilbert. And Dr. Gilbert has really done some very interesting thinking about intergenerational sex ed in the black community, which I love. And I, I, I really support her work. And um, I'd really encourage your listeners to uh, take a look at some of the work that she's doing. She's fantastic. I love that idea and, and the idea of flipping that so that when it comes to our 
elders, our elders rather, when it comes to our elders, that um, maybe our young people have a role in opening up conversations about sexuality there the other way. There's a funny cartoon of the kid in front of the um, laptop and the father comes and taps him on the shoulder and says, well, I guess it's time to talk about sex, son. And the kid turns around and says, what do you want to know, dad? I don't know. <laughs> so There is so a bit the, of that going on. Yeah. So the kids, the kids know so much and they've learned so much in so many different ways. Um, some of it really helpful and some of it not very helpful. But it'd be great if the young people could start the conversations. And there are some really good groups in the U.S., like Advocates for Youth. I don't know if you know them or Scarletine that are doing sex education with young people where the young people are on their advisory board. So they're teaching the adults what it is that they need to, uh, you know, uh, bring forward. And in terms of the um, parent-child interaction, when we flip it around the other way, I love the idea of taking everybody for a drive. (laughs) 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 I can work with your older parent as well, like still on the road. Um, (laughs) But when you're doing work with um, the children of parents, um, what do you find are some of the challenges there and, and how do we start to unpack those? Mm. I'd say one of the um, areas that we need the most work on is gender. I think for many of the, the young people, that I've talked with, the young parents I've talked with, gender is really the issue that's coming up much more. For my generation, you know, I'm in my 60s, orientation was really the biggest issue for us, and sexism was the biggest issue for us. But right now, those seem to have taken a bit of a, a changed role, and that gender has really become part of the the major battleground, at least around here. And I would say that the parents really need to kind of get up to speed on language, nomenclature, and um, eschewing a lot of their assumptions because they make assumptions based on a presentation that may be incorrect. Mm -hmm. And I know for my own experience, when uh, I get introduced to a, a new baby, a f- uh, young friends just had a new baby uh-uh. and they didn't reveal their gender and it was very simple for me and so the kid was a they yeah that's who they that's who they were they were they and it was very simple for my ch- you know I have two kids in their 20s for my kids friends when they are going through their own questioning about gender it's harder for me to make the switch because i've known them as a particular right. gender and i have to continually ch- check with myself and sort of check it out my kids don't have that same issue they're just much more adept and so when i talk with parents gender is often really one of the the, the major battlegrounds that uh, we need to kind of remind parents how to deal with. And and it's been um, a challenge, I think, for many parents uh, to kind of get up to speed about that. Another one is, uh, I think, consent. Yeah. When we were growing up, we had to sit on our uncle's laps and it wasn't always pleasant and it was scary. Mm. And we had to be kissed by people that we didn't really like. Go ahead, kiss them, you know. And <laughs> there's a real change now where... Yeah. You know, young people are saying, nope, 
uh-uh, I'm not going to do that. So that consent has become a much bigger um, uh, part of their vocabulary. And one of the thorniest areas in which you deal with that is um, with residential care and dementia. Oh, very much so. Yeah. 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 Um, and there are a lot of organizations in dementia care that don't have policy around that. And some of your work is spent advocating space for policy development. Um, how's that going? Um, we are behind you all. Uh, in the U.S., we have very few tools through which we can measure sexual consent for people with cognitive impairments. Um, we have very few policies that protect sexual wellness and sexual health for older adults with um, the desire to have a sexual life with cognitive impairments. And even if we take the dementia um, uh, out of the equation, we have very few senior living communities that have any policies at all. So I'm interested in the organizational level and the macro level, and I'm on a kind of a um, exciting project right now. I'm working with a doctoral student who's developing an assessment tool. Now, I think, I'm not quite sure, but I think in uh, some parts of uh, New Zealand, Australia, uh, Great Britain, uh, other parts of the world, there are some rather um, sophisticated assessment tools that staff members, clinicians mostly, can use to develop a, an understanding with the individual about whether there is um, the ability to arrive at sexual consent, either verbally or non-verbally, because I've been training people in getting a sense of what are the nonverbal cues, even if the person doesn't have the ability to form sentences any longer? Uh, and I'm excited about this project, and I think the student that I'm working with will be done by next year, and that we will be able to develop a new tool. But we really have very few policy-level uh, interventions. So what does a policy um, um, entail? Training, physical right. plant changes, uh, privacy, uh, risk, um, how much family members need to be involved. Does the family member really need to know about this or not, right? Those kinds of questions. Um, liability issues, legal issues, who is the guardian here? Um, there's so many levels where right now the senior living communities, which in the U.S. sometimes have a couple of hundred people in the, in the building, are making decisions like that, like in a nanosecond, they open the door, they walk in on two people having sex, and everybody goes, you know, bananas. Well, yeah, that's the wrong that's the wrong term. But everybody has a hard time, and oh, wrong wrong term. Everybody is going just really uh, running out of the out of the apartment and doesn't know what to do. And so I think the the reason I'm looking forward to develop more policies is because it means we're going to have more conversations and conversations are real. I mean, you, you know, you call me an angelic troublemaker. That's very kind of you. John Lewis really was my hero, but I believe that we can, we can do a lot by having conversations. These are the kinds of brave spaces that we need to develop, right? This is, this is the, the moment where mm. an executive team, a management team could sit around and say, uh, I know that we've got a, a few people who are 
interested in each other and I'm not quite sure if they all know what's going on. How do we handle that? What an amazing conversation. Yeah. Before someone from a family comes and complains about, you know, um, their mother doing something they didn't think she should be doing. And also having conversations with our parents before or even if they go into res care about their sexuality and acknowledging it and creating space for that. Right. It's right. like a, a reverse flip goes on. I, for me, the analogy is very much around how we are with teenagers, where it seems like children of older parents assume an awful lot of ability to take control and to police the boundaries um, or to set the boundaries of somebody's life at a time where they might well be perfectly capable of making decisions. Right. That's such an important point. You know, I've been wondering about this. Do you think that the very same people who are blocking sex education for their children are going to be the same people who are blocking sexual liberation for their parents? I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. No one's done that research. But it seems like that that adult child who is a barrier often can be uh, turned around and could be really helpful if they wanted to have a conversation like for instance what if the what if the older adults in that family were swingers or were yeah. into non-monogamy or polyamory and the children never knew about it or they were kinky and the kids never knew about it what a disservice now that the child is going to try to quote unquote protect those parents from some untoward behavior. It just doesn't make any sense. We do need to have those conversations and they're very hard for people to have. Imagining our parents as sexual is tricky. Totally. Um, partly because I think literally we don't want to imagine anybody having sex unless it's mm -hmm. Hollywood doing the job for us because right. I would not want to record myself and watch later. It's, this is not, you know, it's beautiful in it, not apart from those who, whose preference it is to watch. It's not necessarily something I want to replay. But the idea of imagining our parents as enjoying pleasure, as having a life in which um, their connectivity was, their need for connection was met. Um, and it's the spaces around that maybe can allow some talk about solo sex. If it's an easier term, maybe that's one to put out there so people feel they have some language they can use um, mm -hmm. around um, what was it like? What did you do? This is the generation that came through when they were mm -hmm. swinging, when polyamory was right, expressing right. itself in a different way. It wouldn't be surprising. Right. And right. kink is another one. You know, there's a beautiful kink community that's older. Mm -hmm. Somebody right. had to be in it. It's quite possibly one of our parents. Right, right. Um, one of the People I interviewed in my book, who's a wonderful guy, Hardy Haberman, who's been active in the leather community for years, said, you know, one of the great things about leather when you get older is you still look good in leather. Yeah. <laughs> him I was thinking about when I raised it. It was a beautifully written story. It's so beautiful. Yeah. I love him. But let me ask you a question. When you say I wouldn't want that tape replayed. I often hear, particularly older women, say, I don't want to undress in front of anyone anymore. I'm, I'm too self-conscious about my wrinkles or my sags or, you know, they, they just feel like their body in some ways has betrayed them. 
And I guess the question I wanted to ask you is, how can we repair some of that damage, mm. right? What are, the, what are the images we need to see? Because we don't see beauty as old. We see old as scary or old as yuck or old as not beautiful. Yeah, uh, and I wouldn't want to conflate those two things. I think that's a really important question. I don't think I'd want to watch a tape of myself at 17 when I was at my most <laughs> live either. It's more, you know, it's in the moment stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. And we don't want to get that literal. But I totally hear you. And I think th that so much of this is grounded in that cultural space where um, aging is a, a, a fearful thing, where yeah. youthfulness is um, the thing that we ch chase and, and validate. And I remember distinctly as a child nestling my head into the rounded belly of an elder and loving that body. And there was nothing about an aging body that was anything other than comforting and beautiful. And then as you get older, you are educated to understand that you should have lifted faces and, and no wrinkles and your breasts should point up, not down, and, and you should have two of them. <laughs> um, it's, um, you know, this whole pursuit of youthfulness and sexuality as associated with it definitely sits in the middle of all of this for me. Mm. Mm. Your question, how do we do stuff about that? Um, we have to, I guess, learn that we've been brainwashed. Mm. Mm -hmm. And that's hard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do you deal with it? Yeah, I mean... I'm asking because I'm always searching for new ways. I, I often say to older adults when I'm teaching a class, like in a senior center, for instance, with people from the community who live in maybe their own homes, they live in different places, maybe they live in apartments. But I talk about ageism and I say, you know, if it's scary to think about undressing in front of someone or having someone seeing your nakedness, right? I mean, nakedness, right? It's such a vulnerable place at any age. You're absolutely right. What I often say to people is, check your lighting. If you have fluorescent lights, right? If I have fluorescent lights like I have in my office here, get rid of those. Light a candle. Candles are really softer light. Get a dimmer, right? Just find some way to just bring the intensity down. Secondly, don't get undressed in front of them. Like, you don't have to. You're going to have to plan having sex when you're older anyway. So if you've planned this event, take your clothes off, put on something sexy that, look, that you look good in, and slide under the sheets. And when they join you, whoever the they is, might be one, might be two, you know, I'm not limited here. Find a way where when you're looking at each other and you're about a quarter of an inch away from each other's eyes, you remember that you're looking into their soul just like they're looking into your soul. And those wrinkles and sags, they disappear at that moment because what you're seeing is really that beauty inside of them. And and I try to convey that to people, and I often have done another thing, which has been helpful. I show this slideshow of older bodies, 
of older naked bodies, and it's beautiful. And I give people a chance to just take a look at the ways in which older bodies can be seen. And and the photos that I show them are just pieces of maybe an arm or a leg, right? Just a piece of it, just to take a sense of what that moment, that that piece of that person is. And and try not to get too judgmental about it. And then the third thing I think that I've done that maybe sometimes is helpful is I I really ask people to think about what it was like when they were 15, 16, 17, mm-hmm. 18, and there was a lot of peer pressure and their thighs were too big, they were too tall, their breasts weren't big enough, their penis wasn't long enough, whatever it is. And then remember that their body has really taken them through so many, so many different experiences, maybe childbirth, right? maybe a war, you know, mm-hmm. maybe in, incredible athletic feats, maybe sitting at home and writing, whatever it is, their body has helped them do it. And can they, in some small measure, be grateful to their body for taking them through this far? Now, those are uh, beautiful tools for navigating, I think, um, really wise. Mm. I certainly, um, I love that. I, I think, and the practicality of lighting. Yeah. You know, yeah. we ignore well, that. Yeah. Yeah. But well, also, so we, we really, we really got to plan though. You know, when you're older, you got to plan, you got to make sure you have your lube and you got to make sure you've got your meds and you've got to make sure that you've got your speaker and your playlist and you've got to make sure you've got tissues and you got to make sure you've got all your sex toys charged you know i mean you you got to be planful when you get older so yeah although having lighting too yeah yeah, having your sex toy always charged allows you to be a bit spontaneous true true true, having lube and tissues by the bed you know lube is really important i find myself so often talking about lube because it's one of those taboo subjects and yet i know transformative Totally, 100%. And you know, there are some loops now that are developed for older bodies. Uh, in particular, there's one that has vitamin E <laughs> and and has really, I think, transformed the way a lot of older adults have been able to um, enjoy their sexual pleasure. And, you know, I often tell people it's not just PIV, penis and vagina intercourse. We have so many other types of um, sexual expressions, including that term that I've been using, outer course, you know, any kind of expression that doesn't include penetration. But just to get back to ageism for one more moment, mm-hmm. I think ageism, ageism is so insidious, right? It's just, it's just, it's like it stops people in their tracks. And I think I'm, I'm developing a course for um, some social workers this summer. I'm going to teach it with a friend of mine who's a sex therapist. And we like doing that interplay between a sex educator and a sex therapist. And I really recommend talking with clinicians because they see everything on the micro level, but we get to see things sometimes more broadly on the macro level. And, and the course is talking about ageism, uh, disabilities, and um, sexuality. And we're going to be talking about some of the theory behind it in terms of uh, disability rights, uh, CRIP theory. I don't know if you're familiar with that term. Uh, Really, I think, very exciting uh, work going on. And then queer theory about this idea that 
older adult sex is kind of like queer sex because there's no procreation. There's no worry about contraception. We're, we're really outside of that heteronormative um, usual sphere of sexual relationships. So um, developing that with ageism as the core and then looking at disability and sexuality uh, theory, I think is going to be extremely helpful for these social workers who are navigating a lot of new territory with their older patients. Yeah, and I really like your conversation and other um, work around learning new sexual scripts. Yeah, I mean, for many people, being on top doesn't work anymore, or uh, going down on someone on your knees doesn't uh, work anymore. So you've got to really think, okay, my knees aren't working, but my mouth is still working. So how can I change that one up? Or I never really was interested in anal, but gee, it just feels so much better than vaginal penetration. So how can I explore that? And again, the sexual script is yours, right? It's not about yours with your partner. It's yours first. And then you can bring that to your partner or your partners to describe what it is that because of your physical challenges, you'd like to use a wedge or a pillow or change up not just the the ways in which you're having sex, but also the timing, the the kind of necessary um, accoutrements mm. that you're going to want by your side. And when you talked about toys being charged up or lube, um, a lot of the sexual scripts that people were used to may no longer be available to them. Mm. Uh, after a hip operation or maybe um, because of um, uh, a neuropathy due to diabetes or mm. or a, a cancer diagnosis. So, And so it's really important to begin those conversations with an understanding of one's own body and one's own desires and also that idea of spontaneous desire versus responsive desire, right? I no longer walk into a room in my 90s just lusting after someone. They've got to sort of kind of move me there or I've got to move me there. I'm not just going to be there automatically. So that's a script change as well. And I do find that people really relate to that. They really get excited when I talk about that because it gives them hope, right? It's another sense of, okay, my time is not all the way over. I can still have this incredible pleasure because, of course, it's going to change everything if you can still have a sexual life because we know all the health benefits of a, of a sexual experience and, and frequent and regular sexual expression. I think we do, but um, maybe it's good to to remind people listening that there are actual health benefits to. Oh yes, there are. Oh yeah. So ready? Yeah. My one of my favorite sex researchers, Dr. Beverly Whipple, who is fantastic and still with us and um, going strong. She wrote a book in the eighties about the G spot. You may have heard of her. She's fantastic. Um. She's done a lot of research on uh, women's sexual response, and she's done work on spinal cord injuries and how you can still have uh, an orgasm even after a spinal cord injury. I mean, she's really done some amazing research. But about 10 years ago, she and a group of her fellow sexuality researchers decided they wanted to look at 
what are the health benefits of regular sexual expression? So among a myriad of uh, articles that they pulled together, and I really recommend you taking your listeners taking a look at Beverly Whipple, W-H-I-P-P-L-E, uh, and her colleagues' work. Uh, one was um, a reduction in the risk of heart disease and the complications of heart disease, um, reductions in the risk of cancer, including two of the most um, conspicuous uh, forms of cancer, uh, prostate and breast cancer, um, re- uh, relief of uh, chronic pain, in particular because an orgasm and an orgasmic response um, brings with it a release of not only um, some important uh, neurotransmitters like oxytocin, but also some other hormonal and other chemical effects like endorphins mm. that can literally change your body's ability to withstand pain and suppress pain receptors. So um, incredible, right? I mean, thinking about Amazing. orgasm as a, as a pain reliever. Um, and then uh, a number of other areas, including um, uh, general uh, uh, mental health response as being um, elevated and uh, physical health response. And when some of the sex researchers looked at older adults' uh, health benefits, what they found was that it actually can improve your physical and mental health at a later age. And so Beverly Whipple and her colleagues were looking at across the lifespan, and really they were mostly looking at people in their 20s and 30s and 40s and mostly heterosexuals. So there's very little research on anyone outside of the heteronormative um, sexual relationship. But in my own research, what I found was that um, I didn't look at uh, frequency or um, regular sexual expression. What I did look at was sexual satisfaction. And what I found was that those older adults in same-sex relationships, so again, this area that was you know, titrating down to a, a population that is rarely studied, um, people in their 60s to mid-70s in same-sex relationships had very high resilience, very low internalized homophobia, right? That idea that what the world, the sort of... He- fear and hatred that the world was putting out about who you were, you were not internalizing it, a very high relationship satisfaction, and that those three were correlated. So that if you think about it, mm-hmm. now this is not causality, this is just correlation, no. that that these folks with, with um, these folks in older adults, uh, part of the population in same-sex relationships, indicated a very high ability to deal with life's troubles. That's what resiliency Mm. is, right? And they've been through a lot of life's troubles because they've been through many years of maybe not being able to come out or uh, invisibility or um, uh, oppression or um, uh, certainly violence has occurred. The resilience and the internalized homophobia were connected to relationship satisfaction. And what was most interesting was that given those three as sort of a triangle, relationship satisfaction was a predictor of sexual satisfaction Mm -hmm. for this population. And what I want to say is their sexual satisfaction wasn't that high. It was kind of moderate. 
So there's work to be done there, right? There's more education to be done. And there's more policy level, political work, activist work that needs to be done um, for this population. But I can really begin to see that the health effects could be really pushed into a positive direction for that population as well. It's um, amazing and important work. Um, and I'm glad Thanks. that we got back to it. I think it's, um, I'm looking forward to seeing more of it. Yeah, um, thank you. I, I want to do more. Actually, I'm, I'm excited about this. And I'm always trying to find other graduate students who need a doctoral dissertation. So if any listeners out there are yeah. looking for a dissertation, call me, write to me, and I'll help you figure out okay. some uh, good De- ideas, good questions. Definitely yeah. put that shout out. Um, and also that reminds me of your book, which I did want to strongly advocate for people reading, not only because it um, dials up resilience, the Stonewall generation um, over time, but it really importantly for me unpacks through tracing some of the roots of where we come from, where we are, um, why we should never take that work for granted and what it took to become resilient for the Mm -hmm. people that you talk to, the stories in your book. It feels like um, a very important book to read. Thank you so much. That's so kind of you. I'm really glad you got to read it. Oh, me too. <laughs> it's amazing. Sto- storytelling is such an important tool, isn't it? It is. And I, I guess um, there's a shout out as well for those who are looking for things to write about. Um, yeah, yeah. Sexuality and older people is a, a, you know, there's a dearth of representation, as you say. Yeah, um, yeah. And it would be good to, I'm sure there are plenty of older authors out there. Yeah. And, and plenty of older people whose stories have never been heard. And yes. what I loved about the book was that these are people who aren't famous. They're not, you know, they're not celebrities. These are regular people who've been working for their whole lives to make changes toward what I believe is sexual liberation to take us way back 52 years ago to the, the roots of the, the modern, what I call gay rights movement from the 70s in the U.S. was begun at the Stonewall Tavern that night on June 28, 1969. I mean, that was a sexual liberation moment. Yeah. And we need to really come back to that. And um the people I interviewed in my book really gave me so much courage to continue to be brave and to be strong and, and to be outspoken and, and to be a troublemaker, to continue to be a troublemaker. I'm so happy that I got to meet these individuals and they all represent different movements and, and different parts of the struggle to um, become truly uh, uh, a social justice warrior. Yeah. And I think, it's a reminder not to take for granted that we progress inevitably towards better. Yeah, yeah. So, but Jane, I have to say, you know, the Pride festivals this year are starting to happen again. You know, we lost a year and yeah. couldn't have Pride. But they're all being taken over by young people. It's so exciting. Oh, people cool. like me who started a pride march in my little town in Northampton, Massachusetts in 1982, where we had 30 people standing because we didn't really have any <laughs> permits or anything. Oh. You know, we're too old now, right? We're getting, we're getting to be the people who need to be the advisors. But the young people are now starting to say... At least, at least, uh, you know, in New York, 
Boston, some of the largest cities in the U.S., these are people who've been out on the streets. Millions of people have been out on the streets for the last two years uh, demonstrating with Black Lives Matter movements all over the country against police brutality, which was one of the key issues mm. that the Stonewall Rebellion was really about. And I'm not saying we need to step aside because we don't have anything to say. What I mean is we need to allow for young people to take leadership, just like we did when we were young, to move forward, to allow them to bring some of the new knowledge that they've been gaining, being on the streets and fighting against police for the last couple of years in the U.S. We need to allow them to take pride in a really exciting, what I think is a liberation direction where pride has kind of meandered a bit and become a bit more assimilationist, at least here in the U.S. I think that's wonderful at one level. At another, I want to challenge the stepping back of elders and say maybe walking side by side um, rather than disappearing. Okay, okay. <laughs> okay, that's very kind. But I've had many years of being in front of the microphone. I've been an activist for a long time. Before I became an academic and before I became a sex researcher, I was on the front lines a lot and it was great fun. I loved it. It was terrific. But the truth is other people have an opportunity now to, to get in the front of the microphone and to really be able to be heard. And I want to be able to, I want to be able to walk shoulder to shoulder for sure, mm -hmm. but I also want to make room I guess maybe that's it. Maybe you're right. So instead of saying the word stepping back, maybe making room for Beautiful. allowing other people's voices to be heard. Because there's a guy at the end of my book. Did you see that guy, Joey Wasserman, who's in his 30s, who's, yeah. whose life is to work with LGBTQ elders. He loves doing that work. And he wants, he believes that storytelling is the way to do it. And he wants to bring his generation forward by hearing the stories of his elders. I think that there's a book there that maybe he could have a go at. If, yeah, yeah. You know, that just um, asking that question, what's your sexuality story of people in their 80s and 90s? And, and that would be a really interesting book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I started with that question. I started with, where were you the night of Stonewall, June 28th? Mm. But, but I, 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 I couldn't start with, what has your sexual life been like? Because people get too nervous. But about an hour into the conversation, I then steered it toward, so tell me about what was your sexual life back then? And what's your sexual life now? And I heard amazing stories from people. You know, there's two women in the book who said they met in their 60s. And they had the best sex of their 60s that they'd ever had in their entire lives. That blew my mind. And I just loved that they were able to say that and that they were able to experience it. And one of them just turned 90 this year and they're still together. Which is really cool. Yeah, very cool. And actually, I want to make that point, Jane, because you said you had um, a lot of work to do because um, you're already older. But um, given one of your heroines was still working at 100, you've a whole lifetime of work ahead of you. I know, I know. And in my field, people do seem to have great longevity. You know, Pat Schiller lived to 103. She was the president of our national organization. And, and my mentor lived to be actually 102. So you're right. I've got some years left. But I can't dawdle. That's the key. I, ah, can't, just, perfect. I can't sit around too much. I got to keep moving. <laughs> uh, um, well, I think what we need to do is um, kind of keep in touch and have you back to tell us more. Great. Um, Thank it's you so much. It's been an amazing conversation. There's so much to cover. It's really hard to create space for it all. Um, but you've given us a, a wonderful window into your world. 
and yeah, what you do. You so and much. it's it's a great mission, Jane. Um, thank you. you know, anything we can do to help from this end. And I think to anybody listening, the takeout here is uh, to remember that older people are sexual, um, enjoy sex, have sex. And, and there are those that choose not to and prefer not to, which is fine too. But it's your, it's in your own interest to challenge um, mm. the prevailing thinking around this because you're moving to that space and it will be you one day. Right. And right. Uh, so, you know, do you want to, someone to tell you you can't be sexual? Is there going to be, as Jane said in one of her talks, an expiration date to your sexuality? Don't go there. Don't go there. Brace you're it, so right. It. <laughs> you're so right. And you know, when you're when you're thinking about all the oppressions in the world, then we got to deal with class and classism and race racism, right? We've got to deal with sexism. Remember that ageism is that one oppression that if we're lucky enough to age, we're all gonna have to deal with. And so you're absolutely right. Working on that now. And also, the people who have had the best sexual lives in their 50s will probably have the best sexual lives in their 80s as well because they'll continue it and they'll learn how to change with their bodies. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think your, your message is a really good takeaway. And I think I have one, one more takeaway, which is don't be afraid to challenge those stereotypes when you're mm-hmm. younger because it becomes more habitual. So I challenged stereotypes when I was young and I'm still challenging them now because I know how to do that, right? I've changed the stereotype that I'm that I'm bumping up against, but I'm but I'm used to opening my mouth and I'm used to raising a bit of a ruckus and I think it's been it's served me well. Uh and it it has also helped my children see that they can have permission as well to do that. So yeah, so any of the listeners who want to think about aging in a new way, this is an opportunity to think about sex in a new way um, when you're younger so that you can carry that forward as you age. Great message. Thanks. Awesome, Thanks so Jane. Thanks for having me. Thank, Thank you. you Such a pleasure here. to be with you. What a treat. <laughs> really hope you enjoyed that. If you need a little more Jane Fleischman in your life or maybe somebody else's life, then head on over to janefleischman.com and check out her TEDx talk. Is it okay for grandma to have sex? We love us a little five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, we do. So go on, you know you want to. Check us out at sexandspace.com, that's sexandspace, D-O-T-C-O-M, on Insta and Facebook, or flick us an email at hello at sexandspace.com and tell us what you think. Massive thanks to all our guests, to the team at String Theory, and for you to making it all the way to the end of another one. Until the next time, bye-bye. If you found some of this material a little challenging, keep coming back and we'll make it really challenging.